With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is here in the building. We are going to do a fun little thing today. It's the doldrums of the draft season. I think that's fair to say, right, Adam? Very fair. Very fair. So we're going to do a bit of a wrap-up look on the non-conference season. I know that there's still like the Big 12 SEC Challenge and mid-conference season. I know that you know we're still getting a couple of games here and there that have some real bearing. But by and large, the non-conference season is over. So we're going to do non-conference season superlatives today for NBA draft prospects, for teams in college basketball, things that we just really want to talk about. Then next week, we're going to release a thing called New Year's Resolutions for NBA Draft Prospects. That will be our second episode in this little two-week period where we discuss some of the best draft prospects and the things they need to work on. So, Adam, I'm excited to do this first one with you today. How's it going, buddy? It's going all right, Sam. It's always good to be here and back with you. I appreciate your flexibility and shout out to uh, to Mark Schindler as well for kind of pushing me and giving me a couple of days to recuperate after a, a long weekend of coaching. They're also, uh, uh, you know, want to recognize what you and Mark talked about on the podcast at the beginning of the week. It's something that you had brought up about NBA teams, fans kind of living and dying more by each game and kind yeah. of overreacting to swings. I thought that was a really shrewd point and something that might carry over a little bit more to this draft conversation that we're having because there's this perception of elite level talent in the 2023 draft class that fans are kind of clamoring more after a string of a couple losses in a row to blow it up. And I'm not a proponent of that, but I certainly think it means that that what we do and what we talk about here has a lot more relevance to several NBA teams and their fan bases. Yeah, I totally agree. And while I am a fan of blowing it up in one case, as we talked about earlier this week, <laughs> uh, I generally don't think teams should blow it up all that much. But let's just jump into this. Let, let's We're hoping to do right around an hour, hour, 10 minutes on this one, hour, an hour, 10 minutes on the next one. And the best way to do that is just dive right in. So we're going to do eight different categories. Best team, fastest rising prospect, surprise one and done breakout upperclassmen biggest question mark moving forward is a pro prospect biggest question mark moving forward is a team biggest disappointment this season as a draft prospect and best potential to rise up the board throughout conference season so adam which category do you want to start with i will just give you the floor I think the best place to start is just with best team right now because as as college basketball season has been going on here I don't think many people anticipated the the top of the the rankings as we see them right now being the way that they look. So, uh yeah. you know, it's it's been I don't want to call it necessarily a major shock, but the the changing around of preseason perceptions even by, you know, December mid, late December here has been pretty staggering. And to me, there's one team yep. that's been just head and shoulders above the rest. And uh, and they get my nod for, for best team in the country right now. It's the Connecticut Huskies. And I don't know if you have a different pick, disagree right there, but they have been dominant to start the year. Yeah, this is my pick for sure. Uh, I think the Connecticut is the best team in the country. I said that like a month ago, that I thought they were the best team in the country. And people were like, wait, really? And I was like, yes, this team is crazy good defensively. They run great sets offensively. I think that this is the best team. And I mean, look, I really liked this Connecticut team coming into the year. I thought that they had a great shot to be like a top 15 second weekend team. Like I was, I I was like very in comparatively to where people were. And I am still surprised, I think, particularly by how good the offense is. I expected the defense to be quite good. Uh, Andre Jackson is one of the best defenders in the country. They play a really good defensive scheme. They have been 
last year they were not awesome defensively necessarily if i remember correctly uh but i thought that the personnel that they were bringing in was really going to help the defense in this fifth season under dan hurley uh Jordan Hawkins, a little bit more athletic on the wing. Tristan Newton, six foot five at the point of attack. Hassan Diara, killer defender. Naheem Aline, really good defender. Uh, and I didn't know what to expect of Donovan Klingon, but Klingon has just been one of the breakout guys of this season so far in college basketball. So, yeah, Connecticut, I think, has the best defensive infrastructure. Uh, they are the Honestly, like they look like the best coached team in the country. They're the deepest team in the country. Like they have like eight or nine guys that I think could be reasonable starters. They evaluated super, super well in the transfer portal with guys like Naheem Aline, with guys uh, like Joey Calcaterra, who was like a borderline old WCC guy that has stepped in and just been critical in terms of being able to knock down shots. But more than anything, they've evaluated really well in terms of recruiting Andre Jackson, Jordan Hawkins, um, Donovan Klingon, obviously, Adama Sonogo. They have figured out these guys that are really, really excellent, uh, excellent players that fit what they want to do. And it's worked on both ends. They have a group of guys that, for the most part, are very complete players, in my opinion. But again, they just run killer stuff. Like, they are together. They move on a string defensively. They're great at the point of attack defensively, not just good. And they have killer rim protection inside when Klingon is in, in there. I, I don't know, man. Like this, this team is like, I think this team is awesome. Like yeah. really, really good. They're, they're tremendous from top to bottom. Uh, it starts with the depth that they have kind of at every position and the size that they have at every position. Like they're just big on the basketball court. Yeah. When you have- Two big guys in Sonogo and Klingon that you can really, you know, trot out there and continue to have the the rim protection, the interior scoring presence and touch that you need in order to to break defenses down at the college level. Like that's a huge advantage. But then they're big at pretty much every other position. Like I think Calcaterra might be the smallest guy, maybe Diara, who gets regular minutes for them. You know, Alex Caraban has been really, really good as a freshman yeah. and a floor spacer. And Tristan Newton, like he's six five, kind of playing the the point guard spot for them a lot of the time. They you know, they're just they're huge, they're athletic, but the identity and how well coached they are is really what stands out to me. Like there is no night where they walk into a gym and don't just try to really pressure opponents and, and get into people. And, and that's that's a fun brand of basketball to watch on the defensive end of the floor, but it's so brutal to play against. Like teams that are relentless are the ones that kind of can keep this up from not just an early season spark here, but carry this all the way. Yeah. I'll be honest. Like I, I'm struggling with the fact that like this team was not seen as like the number one team in the country according to like the coaches poll, like all, all due respect to Purdue. Purdue is really good. Pur- Purdue is absolutely terrific, but you watch this Connecticut team and the level they are at defensively as compared to a team like Purdue is just a completely different level. Like it, it's just really not even all that close, frankly. Like I, I love this Purdue team. Like, I, I think they're terrific. I think Zach Eady's been terrific. This is another coaching staff with Matt Painter that has evaluated the hell yeah. out of recruits and figured out the exact guys that fit exactly into their scheme. I'd have them number two right now. Yeah. But I, I, don't, I don't get it why this Connecticut team is not number one. They're number one in the metrics. They are number one. Um, like they have beaten great teams, not just good teams. Like yep. they have beaten Oregon, Alabama, Iowa state, Florida, Butler. Like they, they have the wins to back it up. Uh, they've done so on a neutral. They have multiple road wins as well against Florida and Butler. Uh, Purdue, their lone road wins are an overtime game against Nebraska and a road win against a Florida State team that might be a dumpster fire. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could point to the fact that maybe Purdue has better wins from the PK-80 or PK-85, uh, where they beat West Virginia, Gonzaga, and Duke. But, like, 
I think Alabama is better than Gonzaga and Duke, frankly. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I don't know, man. This is uh, it, It's a bit bizarre to me. I mean, again, Oregon, Alabama, Iowa State, Oklahoma State, Florida, and Butler. Six of their last seven wins, all of them by double-digit points. No team has been able to eclipse 70 on them this year. I mean, well, dominant. Let's be clear. They've won every game by double digits every so game. far. Their closest win is Oklahoma State by 10. Oklahoma State's like a top 35 team. Like, they're pretty good. Uh, the rest of their wins are, I believe, by 10 or more. This team isn't just like beating teams. They're beating the brakes off of teams. Like, it's bad. They're fantastic, Sam. Fantastic. And and the Big East is always deep and always has some, some really good programs in it. But I don't think that there's that elite team that can go toe-to-toe with UConn at the top this year. Like, I think Creighton is not quite there. Villanova is not quite there this year. Like, this is, this is going to be uh, – a potential run the table situation for the Huskies. Like they went on the road and beat Florida and Butler by 20 plus. And like both of those teams are like, maybe they could get to like the back. Like maybe Florida is an NCAA tournament team. And then like Butler has a chance to be an NCAA tournament team. Like, I I don't know, man, this is a great basketball team. I think this is a legit great basketball team. Uh, Prospect wise. I mean, they have, Real NBA prospects, Jordan Hawkins, Andre Jackson, Donovan Klingon, Sonogo will get a shot at some point. They're just, they're talented. They're deep. They play together. They have great connectiveness defensively. They play with identity. Uh, they run great stuff offensively. It's just a, it's a genuinely complete team. Like, I, I don't know what the weakness is. Uh, in, in terms of like when you look like they have great ball movement, they're currently 11th in terms of assists per field goals made. Uh, I guess that like maybe you could say they foul a little bit too much, but that's what your like advantage is when you have nine guys that you right. can play. Right. Um, they force turnovers. Maybe you could say that like Tristan Newton and like Naheem Aline and some of those Andre Jackson can get a bit turnover prone. Like maybe, maybe that's your argument. Like maybe you can like crank up the pressure on them a little bit, but they have like five ball handlers out there that can like break the press. So it's hard. It's hard to like pinpoint how you beat them. That That's what I'm struggling with. Yeah. Like against Purdue, you have to have a guy that's seven foot two, and seven foot tall and like can bother Zach Eady. If you don't have that, then you basically just have to let him go nuts. And then you just have to like stay connected to the shooters and see what happens and hope that Edie has an off night. Like Nebraska, I think did a really good job of like kind of showcasing like maybe a bit of a like goal in terms of how you can do it against Connecticut. Well, how, as a coach here, you coach basketball. This is where you're at. How, what is your strategy for beating Connecticut? I I really have no no clue. Um, you know, I think that Purdue, like what I've seen a little bit success with, is if you can really go smaller and get the ball to the man that Edie's guarding, then dribble him out to the perimeter and either blow past him or use that as an avenue to get cutters and slashers downhill. You can beat Purdue that way, and you just you have to outscore Purdue because if if you're going to play smaller against them, Edie's going to get his. But yeah. UConn, they're just so damn versatile. Like I don't, I don't really know what I'd want to give up. I think with individual guys, you can try to game plan for it. Like I'd sag way off Andre Jackson and try to turn him into more of a perimeter shooter and just dare him yep. to do things there. I'd play Jordan Hawkins really, really tight and maybe top lock him, force him away from all of the the down screening yep. actions and handoffs that you get to him. Like there are individual things you can do against them, um, but from a uh, just but, but how it's well, like the, they're so well-rounded that they're going to find a way to beat you anyway. Yeah, it's like the sheer number of individual things yes. you have to do. There are so many of them that if that you're in all likelihood, the defense works, it's going to break down at some point. You have to be so locked into every single assignment that it's just really hard. It's really, really hard to beat them. Yeah, like if you if you top lock Hawkins and you try to sag off Jackson, like okay, they're just going to throw the ball inside to Snuggo and Klingon the entire game. If you double yeah. those guys in the post, they've got enough perimeter shooting around them with Hawkins and Caravan and Newton and all of these other guys that can just stretch the floor. Like 
they can beat you any type of way you try to attack them. I think it's more of a pick your poison based on what your personnel is if you're going up against UConn. But again, it's about identifying the individual mismatches that you want to try to negate. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Okay. We're both agreed on Connecticut, but let's go to one where yeah. we're disagreeing here. Okay. Uh, let's go to fastest rising NBA draft prospect right now. We have a different answer here. This guy was number, the answer that you have was number two for me in multiple categories. Okay. So let's start with him. Who is your award for fastest rising prospect currently uh, in college basketball? So I identify fastest rising in kind of two regards. One is the ability that they've undergone over the last month to really impress me with their play, to move into being a legitimate first round prospect. The other way I kind of evaluated this is trying to get a sense for the the mainstream buzz that is building around them. That is, is it someone other than me? Yeah. Is this more of a consensus that this prospect is, is really rising their way really quickly up boards. And the guy that keeps coming to my mind is Maxwell Lewis at Pepperdine. Yeah. I know he's somebody that you had identified over the summer as you know a potential breakout guy. I wanted to see what he'd do this year at Pepperdine with you know a little bit longer of a leash. Can he build more into a primary role, become super efficient? He's done that, but athletic attacks the rim plays with a ton of bursts like it can score in multiple different levels in a ton of different ways i see ways for him to have solid defensive potential i don't think he's there yet uh, but he's he's really really impressed me in in the glimpses that i've caught of pepperdine which is i know your favorite team in the country to watch sam yeah they're really fun uh <laughs> lewis was my second option here uh he has been just an absolute monster so far for Pepperdine, there is uh, there are very few players in the country that are more efficient than he is. He's shooting 46 percent from three, 55 percent from the field, 82 percent from the line, uh, averaging one point two steals, one point two blocks. Like you said, I think that he's not an awesome defender, but at that level, his athleticism and length combination uh, just really wreaks a lot, wreaks a lot of havoc uh, in a pretty yeah. real way. Uh the things that he does, he moves really, really well without the ball and creates shots that way. He also has really developed his ability to like, okay, I see that I'm mismatched. I am six foot seven. I have long arms. I can take this guy down on the block and shoot over top of him. It's not something that like he's going to do regularly in the NBA, but it's clearly showcasing his aggressiveness and like his willingness to try and find his shot. Right. Uh, the passing has improved. I don't know that he like processes the game at an exceptional level. Right. But I think that he is recognizing how much defensive attention is being paid to him and how he can now play off of that. I would not be surprised if he ends up going in the top 20 is where yeah. I'm at. Uh, he is six foot seven. He shoots off of movement. He has real NBA level athleticism and size and length. I, I see a lot here that teams are going to fall in love with. Totally agree. Uh, and the intangibles seem to check out with him, Sam, that he's a hard worker. He's an honest, introspective kid who kind of understands the areas that he needs to continue to improve in his game. Uh, to me, those are valuable traits and looking for a guy that's going to continue to get better at the next level. Big fan of Lewis. Okay, my answer here was Jet Howard. And the reason that I picked Jet Howard is because I think he's going to end up going in the lottery. And I don't think that a lot of people ended up having him in the lottery coming into the year. He's really like, there are a couple of guys. We ended up having Brandon Miller in the lottery, right? Preseason. Yes. We had Cason Wallace. We had Gigi Jackson. We had Keontae George. Um, you know, we, we had Anthony Black and Cam Whitmore and the Thompson twins and Nick Smith and all those guys. Right. Howard is the one that like has really risen up to me. You could also pick Grady Dick here. Uh, Howard and Grady Dick are the two guys that have really risen up for me as like, these guys have a real shot to end up in the lottery at the end of the day with jet Howard, six foot eight can handle the ball in second side actions. Very real shooter can just take dribble handoffs and fire behind them has real flexibility. Just doesn't have a ton of burst yet. I think as a ball handler and that's going to be 
incumbent upon him to improve, but he has all the skills in the world and has real NBA size and athleticism as well as very high level basketball IQ, I think. Uh, to where I, I would bet you that he ends up going in the top 20, certainly. And I think that he will end up being picked in the lottery because it's just hard to find guys that are six foot eight that can handle and shoot and do everything he does. Yeah. The, the feel is what really impresses me, Sam. Like he's just yeah. a, a tremendous passer without having to run a ton of like unique action for him. Just get him in a handoff coming to his right get him one step on his defender, and he kind of makes the right read, the right play, whether that's to get to the rim, to pull up. A lot of times it is for a pull-up, but he, he will make the, the right decision and kick at times too. Did you see that one kind of behind-the-back play that he had yeah. to the dunk in transition? Like there's yeah. there's burst and there's creativity and just like a flair to him that that's super fun and you want to you wanna buy into. Um, yeah. I think there's there's a real comparison point here between Howard and Maxwell Lewis. That these two guys yeah, are, agree. are, you know, they fill s- some similar uh, stereotypes of what you look for in NBA wings, the shooting ability, length and size positionally. I think it's going to come down to Howard's feel versus Leward. Lewis probably being a little bit more explosive of an athlete. Uh, and, and that's well, definitely that's the more main, explosive. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the main difference between the two. I think Howard's feel as a playmaker and a potential secondary guy is a lot higher than Lewis's, but. Maxwell might have a lot higher of a ceiling on the defensive end of the floor just because of his athleticism. Yeah. And like Jet Howard is a very real like ball handler and like live dribble passer and like makes plays that way um, in a way that I haven't quite seen from Max Lewis yet. I would venture Jed Howard goes ahead of Max Lewis, I think is where I'm at. I love Max. And like, I think we're probably, I don't know. Like I mentioned him in the preseason, I'm saying like 20 ish right now. I think we're probably pretty high on him. Yeah. Uh, this isn't a slight at him. It's just more that, you know, we just named him one of the fastest rising prospects. Right. So yeah, Max is great. I, I just think jet ends up going a little bit higher. Sure. End of the day. Sure. Okay. Let's take a quick commercial break. We will be back in a minute. Okay, Adam, we're back. Let's do this next. Let's go to some question marks that we have here moving forward. Sure. Let's go biggest question mark team for you moving forward in college basketball. Biggest question mark as a, as a team for me kind of has to be the Duke Blue Devils. Um, and okay. the, there's multiple reasons for that. I think that they have an immense amount of talent. And because of that talent, they're ceiling to be a team that contributes way into March and deep in the NCAA tournament has to be almost as high as anybody else in the country. Betting against Duke because of their talent level doesn't make a lot of sense. They're just, they've got second weekend, maybe even final four potential, but man, is it really rough in terms of how they're putting things together? Like they're winning games and they're grinding some things out, but I don't think any individuals outside of Filipowski are playing really to their, to their potential. There's this whole three big lineup that they try to throw out there with Mitchell and Filipowski and, one of lively or young that just doesn't mesh well with the non-shooting guard that they'll play in Tyrese Proctor or sometimes Jalen Blakes. There's the disappointments that we've seen from Derek Lively and the, the lack of health from Derek Whitehead this year. Like just so many question marks around this program with the individuals involved in it and the way that they all fit together that I wouldn't be surprised if this is a team that ends up losing 12 or 13 regular season games. I also wouldn't be surprised if, if they figure it all out and end up being one of the top five or six teams in the country come March. The good news is that they're in the ACC and the ACC isn't all that strong. Like their, yeah. their, their first group of games here in ACC plays Wake Forest tonight, Florida State, NC State, Boston College, Pitt, Clemson. None of those teams are top 50 teams right now. So theoretically, they should be able to get out to 6-0. and in the ACC and like they'll be, they should have a runway to kind of figure some things out. This is let, let's attach biggest question mark as uh, 
yeah, let's let's attach biggest question mark here as a player uh, moving forward for me. And I, I'll pick Derek Whitehead here okay. because I, I just don't know what to make of his play so far. Again, you and I have noted, we think he looks a little bit heavy coming off of the foot injury and he's starting to like kind of figure a couple of things out here and there, right? Like he had 15 against Maryland Eastern shore. He had eight in the Iowa game and looked a little bit more, uh, a little bit more ready and explosive. He started the Maryland Eastern Eastern shore game. That was his first start of the year. So like he's coming around. I I just feel like he doesn't look quite as explosive as what we've seen at lower levels for him. And this isn't to say he was like some wildly explosive prospect. He could throw down some big dunks. He's a very aggressive player, but like he's, he's a, he's a good athlete, not a like elite of the elite NBA athlete. So him being a little bit heavy, potentially looking not quite as explosive, what does that do for his stock? He's almost going to be like a little bit dependent on pre-draft workouts. Maybe if he can take like a couple of weeks off after the season ends and like try and recover, maybe he is just like getting that time off here and there. Uh, I think that Duke does have like a bit of a window here after the game tonight against Wake Forest. They have 11 days between this game and their next game against Florida state. So maybe those two weeks almost off will really help him, but Based off what we've seen right now, he doesn't look like a first-round pick, but we've seen enough from Dariq Whitehead at lower levels to where we know that he absolutely should be a first-round pick. But like, where does he where does he fall in this range? Does he end up being a top ten pick? Does he end up being a top fifteen pick? Is he an end of the first round flyer for someone? I think there are a lot of outcomes that are still up in the air. I would venture he goes in the top fifteen still, but. We don't know that yet, I think is the thing. Yeah, it's almost this element of what we saw last year with like Patrick Baldwin Jr. to some extent. Like it's so highly touted at lower levels that maybe there's an NBA team that doesn't necessarily care about how he looks health-wise or what the numbers and performance necessarily is at Duke. Like if they can feel comfortable with the medicals that he's going to continue to improve and they've seen the upside from high school and AAU – then maybe he does end up being a you know a higher level first round guy. Uh, I, I'm concerned with Whitehead specifically because even though he had a better showing scoring wise against Eastern Shore, like everything that he had was kind of in the second half when the game was out of reach. It seemed like it was, hey Derek, this is already in hand. Go out there and find a way to get your mojo back. Yeah, and yep. and while that's important, and 11 days rest here uh, over the holiday is going to be really important for him. We just we don't know yet. Based on where we are right now, we don't know what he's going to look like, how he's going to respond, if his body plays his way into a little bit more shape, if just more time is all that's needed to get his explosion back. Because right now he doesn't have it, and it's a little bit concerning to me because I don't think of him as super, super quick with the ball in his hands where he's going to need to play with uh, you know, burst in the open floor. And when he gets a runway, he's got to take advantage of it. And I don't think he can do that right now. Yeah, and look, like let's be real with it. Like, he's probably a one-and-done guy. And yeah. if we don't get the best sample of what he can be in college, just due to the injury he suffered in the preseason, it's going to be a hard evaluation. It's just going to be a difficult evaluation just because we'll know all the context. We'll know what he was in high school, but you know, we won't have seen it against super high level play. And that'll be difficult for teams to parse through. I think uh, my biggest question mark is a team to get back to the original point here, and then we'll go to your biggest question mark as a pro prospect. My biggest question mark as a team is Illinois. Uh, what What is Illinois? Do, do we know yet, Adam? Uh, they've beaten UCLA, who looks absolutely tremendous. They lost to Virginia. They've beaten Texas. They've lost to Maryland and Penn State. I think this team is the... Biggest difference between when they're playing at their best and when they're playing at their worst right now. Uh, They can lose to most teams, it feels like, on any night. All due respect to Maryland and Penn State, like they're both, you know, probably NCAA-ish tournament teams. Especially Maryland. Uh, Penn State, I think, probably ends up being there, but I want to see what they look like in Big Ten play. 
they've been good this year, Penn State, and they deserve credit. But like Illinois is much more talented than they yeah. are. Yeah. Illinois is one of the most talented teams in the country. And they have pieces that fit really well together. What's going on with Illinois right now that they are as weird as they are? I, I wish I could tell you there. Uh, Sam, it's been a couple weeks since I've watched a lot of Illinois basketball. Uh, you know, I've seen the the results here. I think dropping a couple games in league early is never the the biggest red flag, but it's kind of an orange flag when you think about just how much more talented they are than, than some of these teams. Like, you know, I'm a huge fan of Dane Danger. You know, I love Coleman Hawkins long term. I've always been a, a you know a Matthew Meyer fan. And their guard play has been kind of, I don't want to call it a wild card, but we've been waiting for the deck to settle just to see who's going to really step up and be kind of the guys for them in the backcourt. And as we get closer to that point, as the season goes on, we'll definitely have a clearer view for how all of the pieces are going to mesh together. But when they're all clicking, when everybody's playing well, like they're one of the most dangerous teams in the country, particularly on the offensive end of the floor. Well, like it, it was like kind of weird, right? So like Matthew Mayer goes out and drops 21 against Alabama A&M. They win that game by 20. And then like after the game, like there are quotes out about like, yeah, there are a lot to figure out internally between the players and coaches, Matthew Mayer said. Um, Taryn Shannon said, it's just something we got to figure out as a team. Once we figure it out, we'll be ready to talk about it. We're good. We're happy we won the game there's stuff we can fix obviously. And then like Matthew Mayer was like, I think the team will be fine. I'm just upset. Uh, Mayer said he and Underwood had different takes on how he approaches his body. Mayer said Underwood focused more on mentality, but he thinks his better play is mostly about changes with physical approach, fasting, diet, everything like that. Those quotes come via Jeremy Werner, who runs the 24 seven site uh, for the Illinois fighting a lion eye it's just a strange deal happening right now it feels like i mean this feels like a situation that could go either way depending on how things shape up there but this team has the talent to be a top six or seven team in the country and they have the talent to make a final four brad underwood's a pretty good coach i think like he's Great putting coach. the team in position to be good even if maybe some of the things that he's doing might be annoying the players, maybe I, I don't, I don't know what to make of all of that. Yeah. All I know is that the team is very fucking talented. They have enough freshman guards to be able to figure out the lead guard spot. And then guys like Terrence Shannon, Matthew Mayer, Coleman Hawkins is the big one. Like Coleman Hawkins yeah. unlocks everything I think for them. Yeah. So like, I, I don't know. Maybe they're good. Maybe maybe they fall apart. This is the biggest question mark in college basketball because they can make a Final Four or like if things really fall apart, they can be like a nine seed or like a 10 seed, yeah. it seems like. Yeah, yeah they're, uh, I like to give small scouting nuggets every once in a while on things, just what I notice watching the film. The thing with Illinois that jumps out to me, you can't zone them. Because Coleman oh, Hawkins no. at the high post is the most dangerous playmaker, the smartest guy that you'll find. He makes every right read and right decision. He can stretch defenses out either to the top of the key or just kind of flowing through all the way down to the corners. And they can run so much different stuff. Like you cannot zone Illinois. And I think that that's something that can maybe just, if they can figure out how to incorporate all the pieces a little bit better, keep everybody happy in their man to man offense, that's what turns us around a little bit more. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Next up, your biggest question mark moving forward as a pro prospect. Yeah, this was kind of a different take for me because I've seen some growth over the last couple of weeks in some key areas from a prospect that I just really wasn't that high on coming into the draft cycle, thought he was a lot farther away than kind of uh, was, was stated in a lot of public forums. That's Leonard Miller, the G League Ignite. Uh, yep. Scoot Henderson's been out for a while. I think that that has translated towards a little bit more playmaking opportunity ball in his hands for Leonard Miller, where he seems really comfortable. Like he's been scoring it decently well of late over those, uh, last seven games since he's moved into the starting lineup. He's been averaging about 16 and a half points, nine boards, shooting 39% from three. Like 
He still turns it over a lot. He's not a really functional passer, even though I think he's got a, a chance to be a good handler and has a solid basketball IQ. But like, I'm still three years into this Ignite program and process. It's hard to evaluate some of these really raw guys with some glaring holes when they're still putting up numbers against pro competition. So for me, that's going to be the, the biggest mystery to try to figure out and solve, which is not just how does Leonard Miller continue to play and progress, but how does it mesh with and without Scoot Henderson? Because I don't think he's going to be good enough to be a number one type of option in the NBA. I, to me, I just don't see that, even though he's super, super toolsy. He's got to be able to figure out some of the off-ball stuff and just clean up his act in that regard. Well, and I think the thing with Miller is I, w- I want to see it with Scoot. Right. Like he's been great in this little run here where Scoot has been out. But the big thing for Leonard has long been how does he play without the ball? And I think we've seen real areas that showcase he's gotten way better at that. Like he is cutting better. The shot is turning sort of, but like, I don't know, it's on such limited volume right now that like and like the shot is so funky, despite the fact that he seems to have touch that I don't know what to do with it yet. Um, The processing speed is very questionable. Like he turns the ball over a A lot, lot, a lot, a lot. And like the passing reads, it seems like because he's had the ball in his hands his whole life is like a six foot 10 creator in Canada. Like he's been very conditioned to be able to make passing reads out of ball screens, but he is still working out like processing reads away from the, like whenever he catches the ball outside of ball screen situations and like, it's trying to find a cutter or is trying to find different things. So interesting player. Anytime you're yeah. six foot 10, you have seven foot two wingspan, you have a nine foot standing reach and you can put the ball on the deck a little bit. You have some potential to shoot long-term. You're absolutely an interesting guy that has a chance to go in the top 20. If things break, right. I, I need to see a little bit more. Currently, I think I would have him like at 30 right now, like late first round, to be honest, because who else has stepped up if we're just being completely real about it? Yeah. But like, I'm intrigued. He's shown enough, even with the flaws to where I'm intrigued. Yeah, I think the Ignite have done a decent job of putting him in the best position to be successful and kind of staggering his minutes with Scoot when they're playing together and saying, like, here's your opportunity to go just, like, score and do what you do best, and and we're not going to worry too much about the turnovers. Keep cleaning up the off-ball play, and he's gotten better there. But I I think that last point that you made is so spot-on, Sam. His spot in kind of the later part of the first round is going to be so dependent on if there are any other risers around him. And that's what scares me about a prospect. Like, I don't know really where to put him yet because I don't think he's seized a first-round spot. I just think that he's shown enough and has such a high ceiling that in comparison to everybody else, I'd say, yeah, why not? I can talk myself into that. But um, I'm scared. I'm really, really scared and don't know what to do with Leonard. Yeah, I agree. Okay, next up. Who is your most surprising potential one-and-done prospect? Ooh, so I'm going to go with a guy we talked about, I think it was last week, uh, as our prospect yeah. of the week or my prospect of the week, and that's Taylor Hendricks for uh, Central Florida. Just continued to produce at a high level, really, really good athlete, long arms, looks the part. I think he can add a little bit more functional strength, but he's only a freshman, so that's not always going to be the case with guys who are you know, 18 and playing high-level college minutes. Uh, shoots the ball really well, finishes things at the rim active defender and that's what's caught my eye most over the last few weeks and watching the film on him is that he flies around on the defensive end of the floor he knows when to switch can guard multiple types of positions he's had a few contests around the rim with verticality from the weak side where he is just showing more polish than you expect to see on the defensive end of the floor from a freshman again looks the part very much the type of guy that nba teams want to buy into because he can play multiple positions, space the floor, finish at the rim and defend. Uh, I, I think that this is probably going to be a guy who, who sneaks not just into the first round, but potentially the top 20. Yeah. So six foot nine ish plus something like that. Uh, 
210 pounds, can shoot from threes, made 50% of his threes. I don't think he's that guy, but he's probably a 40% three-point shooter from the college line at least. 76% from the line. Uh, doesn't rebound quite as well as you would want for someone that size, and I think that he's definitely still working through his processing speed is like a passer and playmaker and make seeing things that are open on the court, but there's just a lot there shooting and defense like six foot nine active defensively makes shots from distance. I would bet you he goes in the first round. Yeah. I, I think based off of what we've seen, like it, he's just, it's hard to find these guys. It's yep. just really, really hard to find these guys that are that big have potential to shoot, have shown real like actual shooting ability at this point. And look like UCF's schedule has been, not great. Like they're like middle of the country in non-conference uh, strength of schedule, but they beat Missouri and or not Missouri. They beat Mississippi and play. He played really well in that game. Yeah. They lost by two to Missouri in a very tight game. Uh, heartbreak. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he played okay in that game. I thought, and then against Oklahoma state, which is, we've mentioned earlier, pretty good team. He had 16 points, made three or four from three, had 12 rebounds. Like, He's played pretty well against high major competition at this point. Um, you know, the Florida State team is not very good, but, you know, another team where he had 15 and 12 and looked pretty solid. This is not a situation where it's just he's beating up on lower level competition. Like Max Lewis is more of a thing with that than Taylor Hendricks is. Taylor Hendricks has performed against pretty good teams at this point. The, the two games to look for with him are going to be the Houston games. Yep. They have a New Year's Eve game against Houston here coming up in 11 days. And then they have another one on January 25th that I think is going to be big. They also have two games against Memphis in the middle of January. And then in the middle of February that those are the four games that will probably tell the tale of if Taylor Hendricks ends up being a one and done. Yeah. And and the American, I think solid, like not, the same level of depth that we've seen over the last couple of years from that conference. Uh, but, you know, like Temple has a couple good wings and some scorers that can test him a little bit on the defensive end of the floor. Like there's, there will be good games for him in there. It's going to be about the consistency of the shot for him. If he can remain a 50% is unsustainable. If he can stay above 40% from three this year, he's going to turn a lot of heads and be a first round guy. I think that's right. My pick was Bryce Sensabaugh because I'm a homer and because I wanted to talk about Bryce Sensabaugh. Um, honestly, I think Taylor Hendricks is a little bit surprising. We've talked about Sensabaugh coming into the season on this show as someone that uh, could end up theoretically being a one and done if things really broke right for him. His shot creation is just ridiculous. Yeah. Like he is very smooth, very polished, has real power at like 6'6, 235 pounds. Uh, but like shiftiness as well. He's not like wildly explosive, but he's explosive enough. He has real shiftiness with the ball in his hands. He's very decisive with his moves. He has real control over the ball, but is very decisive in getting to the spots that he wants. And because he's strong enough, he can get to the spots he wants regularly. So I really like what I've seen from Bryce Sensabaugh offensively. Defensively is another ball game. Uh, it's not been great. I will say I thought he was a little bit better against North Carolina than what we've seen it's coming along it's coming along for him defensively he's also shown i think a few more passing reads yes. than what the poor assist numbers will indicate he throws some reasonably effective live dribble passes so taking all of that in conjunction i think he does end up being a one and done and i think he does end up being a first round pick what how high will be dependent upon cleaning up some of the nuances of his game, but he's a very good shooter. He's made 47% from three, 82% from the foul line. He is a real shot creator and he is very, very strong, yes. physical, looks ready to play in the NBA from that standpoint as well. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I thought about going sensible here as well, uh, but Hendricks is more of a surprise based on the kind of preseason yes. conceptions that we had about some of these guys. But I think Sensabaugh, I, I think Sensabaugh is probably a little bit higher than Hendricks on my current kind of board and and what we've seen so far this year, just because the three level scoring ability is so tantalizing. 
So we kind of talked breakout potential one and done now. Let's go to breakout upperclassmen where you and I picked the same guy. Oh, let's And go. this is a guy that has been one of my favorite players in college basketball now for a couple of years. I didn't really think he was an NBA player. I'm going to be honest. Now, I think he has a real shot. And I don't know if I would take him in the first round. I probably wouldn't at this point. But he's put himself on the radar in a very real, tangible way. Spins? Who is it? It's Jalen Clark from UCLA, baby. It's Jalen Clark. I love Jalen Clark so much. What a yeah. fun player. It, it's funny. I was never high on him as a pro prospect coming into the season. Just didn't see it without the shot. Really, really smart player, smart cutter, unbelievable defender, both on ball and with his instincts to rotate, disrupt passing lanes. You watch the way UCLA is playing now. They're trapping and they're pressuring a little bit more. They're doing some stuff in the full court defensively. Clark is thriving in that. Like every time I'm watching UCLA, it seems like he has four or five steals, a block or two, doing a great job knocking down his open threes. He's hitting a few off the bounce even. like The, the offensive development that we've seen paired with his defensive activity and IQ could make him an incredibly valuable role player at the next level. We've got to see the shot continue to fall because this is still a what, 12, 13, 14 game sample at the start of the season here. And you know what we've seen a little bit from him, Sam, is this when he's got smaller guys on him, he'll take them into the mid post and go to this unique like righty hook shot turnaround that, that he's comfortable doing. I don't think that translates to the NBA for his game, but it shows touch and it shows this willingness to kind of add different things to his, his profile and, and what he's going to be able to do at the next level. Uh, not a first round guy for me, but you don't want to bet against his intangibles. And I think that those are the guys you look for early in the second round. I just, I wish he was like an inch or two taller. I just, I really wish he was six, seven. His measurements are going to be among the most important things that we see pre-draft. Uh, like he, he really needs to measure well. Uh, if he measures it like six, three, seven, five, it's going to be a problem. I think. If he shoots 39% from three on three attempts per game the rest of the year, I would imagine he goes in the first round because he is, I mean, is he the best defender, perimeter defender in college basketball? I I believe he is. And and it's because of the versatility of it. He can guard different positions. He's so good off ball, like his, his IQ and passing lanes, his ability to just turn up pressure on guys. Like that's what does it for me. There's no box that he doesn't check for a perimeter defender. Yeah. Like I will say like the one box that like, I think you can catch him on sometimes is I don't think he's like super physically strong. And I think you can like go through his chest from time to time, which is actually really, really important if we're projecting a guy as like a defensive stopper at the next level. Right. But what he does super well is he's just super disruptive with his hands. He is constantly around with his hands, trying to disrupt dribble handoffs, trying to get through ball screen opportunities, trying to poke the ball away. He's very strong hands as well in terms of being able to convert deflections into turnovers. Um, Jumps passing lanes super well. Awesome rotationally. Like across the board, he is an awesome defender in terms of like translatable. Like he's the best college defender, I think. In terms of like translatable perimeter defender, I might bet on Case and Wallace's physical strength just sure. a little bit more uh, in terms of like the way it will work at the NBA level. But like Jalen Clark will be a very high level defender in the NBA. He will be a plus defender for sure. It's going to come down to the shot. If he shoots 39%, I'm probably going to end up having him in the first round. Love it. If he, and like I get good reports from scouts and people that see him pre-draft, but I want to see more. I need to see more on the shot. I don't really love the fluidity in the mechanics. I don't know about you. Um, go ahead. No, I, I, I don't either, but I also like, I don't care if it continues to go in and go in really, really consistently. And that's, that's what I care more about. I don't know. Yeah. I I care a lot about how it looks. I'm going to be honest with you. Like being able to shoot like quick trigger threes is really, really important. And as that time shortens in the NBA and your mechanics have to speed up, being able to knock down 
like shots when having solid enough mechanics to where you can repeat them and when you're being sped up, have confidence that they're going to be there. It is really important to me. Um, yeah, but if he can shoot enough, like he's shooting 67 from the line right now, something like that. So like if you don't have elite touch, you got to have like just pristine great mechanics and i don't know if they're always there right now for yeah. him but if they continue to develop like he's going to be right there i think for me yeah, or at least consistent mechanics right it doesn't have to be the most aesthetically pleasing but if it's quick enough and it's consistent it's the same every time you shoot a, a similar shot then then i might be all right okay biggest disappointment is another one that we agreed on unfortunately um I'll be the one to say this, so yeah. I don't put you in that spot. Uh, it is Derek Lively, I think. Uh, if Ryan Young is just as effective as you are on the court for Duke, which, like, unfortunately has kind of been the case, if not, like, more effective uh, than Ryan or than Derek Lively from time to time, like, you, you do have problems uh, in terms of what your NBA potential likely is uh you know they're starting to phase lively in more playing him more minutes than ryan young giving him more opportunities he's been okay like you again was good against maryland eastern shore he had eight points nine rebounds five blocks but like i don't know that we've seen the like standout great unbelievable performance yet he was probably like his best games what probably the one against ohio state right yeah probably yeah and like he had four fouls in that game in 18 minutes and like he's just really struggled to stay on the court yeah and i think duke has again with playing as many bigs as they do like it, it just gives a different margin for error for a guy like that like he, he can't have the leash to play through some of that stuff particularly if he's in foul trouble and they have other good options like just roll with it roll with you um yeah. you know lively's game and th- this is going to be the i've said this before when we've talked about lively the eternal optimist in me is always going to come to the defense of a screen and roll finishing big who plays in a college yeah. system that doesn't run a ton of ball screens and has horrible spacing the way the blue De- the blue devils do so there's like i'm not as worried about the raw numbers and the volume of offensive production. It's the efficiency near the rim, but it's the defense. Like everything about Lively coming out of high school and being a potential pro prospect was he can be a game changer for an NBA team on the defensive end of the floor. Great shot blocker, smart rim protector, long and fluid enough athlete that there might be some switchability upside. And if he's going to continue to foul, yeah. I've never bought that. Yeah, like I've never been as high on the switchability. I've always thought he's more of a drop big. Um, not because like he can't do it. Like if he gets pulled away on an island, like he might be okay with it. But you're never going to like, you're never going to run a scheme with Derek Lively where you're switching. You know what he, I mean? You shouldn't want to because in theory, he's that good of a rim protector and a guy who's, who's that valuable yeah. to have in the paint. But if he's not going to be that guy, and he's getting in foul trouble all the time. He's not polished with his angles and in, in play and drop. You almost have to explore that space a little bit. Or it's it's the fascinating dichotomy of if you're not great at one thing, you've got to be good at multiple. And I, Lively might be caught in between there, where he's not good enough to be a versatile big, but he's not yeah. great enough to be solid in one coverage. That like he's he just gets squeezed in that regard. And I haven't seen enough positive you know, growth from him over the last couple of weeks. There's been some, but not enough to say like, okay, this is the first round pick that we thought we were going to get coming into the season. Yeah. If you had to bet, do you think he goes in the first round? I do. Um, and a lot of that's, again, similar conversation we had earlier. It's driven by the lack of guys that have really made up ground and that I would say are, are surefire first round picks at this point. And this growing trend that we've seen over the last couple of years of NBA teams drafting based on, you know, potential and upside that might've been apparent as guys were high schoolers. Uh, I think that there's been enough cushion the last few years for one and duns who haven't performed incredibly well in college to still go in the first round that lively might be another guy that goes with it. But again, 
as a big man, that's a hard thing to do, particularly. I was going to say, have, have we seen it from bigs? We that's my question. Yeah, we haven't. Yeah. I think it's really 50, 50. Yeah. If he goes in round one at this point, um, we shall see. Okay. Let's finish on a positive. Let's finish on a fun thing. Yeah. Uh, the best potential to rise as a prospect here moving forward. Who is the guy, Adam? I'm giving you the floor. It's time, as Bruce Buffer would say, uh, for Baba Ganoush Miller from the Florida State Seminoles. Uh, Look, I love Baba. Hashtag free Baba Miller. The NCAA has done him wrong this year. We haven't gotten to see him yet. So he is the ultimate wild card just because there's, there's no knowing how much growth he's undergone over the last few months in terms of his he body. Might be seven two. He, he might, might be seven four. He might be filling out a little bit more. He might have, you know, tightened his handle a little bit, but I keep going back to just might be the, seven eight. <laughs> the flash He's growing fast. The flashes that we've seen from him, Sam, are so enticing to me of guys who are that size yeah. that can move, that can handle a little bit, the comfort that he has shooting the ball, not just off the dribble or catch and shoot, but even off movement and screens. Again, with his movement patterns and his length, he he has so much defensive upside to tap into. And, and this yeah. is the biggest thing for me. We've mentioned Florida State, not their best year. Uh, kind of a little bit of a mess down there in Tallahassee, at least on the offensive end of the floor. They just don't have enough guys that can create. Could this be the situation where Baba comes back here in January really steps into a role and just says, fuck it, I'm I'm going out there and I'm making plays happen. This is the yeah. time to show everything that Bob Miller can do. We need a spark as a Seminoles program, so let's put the ball in his hands and, and see what this kid's made of. And he all of a sudden climbs his way really quickly up draft boards. Man, I was so wrong on Florida State this year. And like, <laughs> look, too. they've gotten hurt. They've, you know, Baba obviously is out. Baba like is a real guy that like ties a lot of this together and makes yeah. it make sense. But like, man, that team is a mess. Yeah, I agree with you. Baba's the guy. Like, if he's there, is every opportunity because the thing we've talked about here is that floor, the um, in general, this draft has not like stood out at an exceptionally high level. Baba has every opportunity to come in and showcase what he's capable of and be the guy that just like spikes up the board and ends up like a lottery pick or something like that. Um, if Florida state ends up being good, it's going to be because of him, I think. So, uh, you know, guys like Jalen Morley, it seems like hasn't made the leap Matthew Cleveland hasn't made the efficiency leap, even if he is like scoring and getting buckets and being productive. Uh, they, they need someone that can be a guy. And Baba is talented enough to be that guy at the very least. So I, I love it. I love Baba so, so, so much. Like this is, you know, to carry on the tradition here, the game theory podcast, like Penny always had his guys. Yeah. This, this is my Baba's guy. your guy. Baba is my guy. Baba is your guy this year. You're putting your marker down on yes. Baba Miller uh, spins. Do you have anything else you want to talk about this week before we get out of here? You know, I, I don't think so. Uh, you know, shout out to the New York Knicks who have won seven, potentially eight in a row uh, at this point. Yeah. Really, really playing well. Uh, but this has been, you know, a, a fun topic to kind of dive into here because as the calendar turns and we get more into conference play, the the biggest thing that is underrated as this time of year happens is coaches know their opponents really really well they study them year after year they know systems they know personnel better than non-conference schedules do so you start to see different warts exposed and parts of individual players games really get pinpointed a lot so i think the next couple of weeks are going to be very revealing from a prospect standpoint for how are coaches that put a lot of time emphasis and understanding into game planning for you what are they doing and what does that reveal to us as the draft community? Yeah. Shout out the three remaining unbeaten teams. We talked about two of them at the top, Connecticut and Purdue. Do you know who the third one is right now, Adam? Is it New Mexico? It's New Mexico. Yeah. Richard Patino. He went out and beat his dad to remain undefeated over the weekend. Uh, they have Prairie View tonight. I would imagine that they win that game. 
And then Colorado State, Wyoming, Fresno, UNLV. That's, you know, given that a couple of those are road games, given that Isaiah Stevens is back for Colorado State, you know, those are those are some games that aren't going to be the easiest games in the world to win. So just want to shout out the New Mexico Lobos real quick while they're still unbeaten. We can talk about them still while we can. Um, do you know how many teams only have one loss right now, Adam? Oh, I would imagine there's probably a decent amount of them. Six, five or six. No, they're 21. 21. 21 teams. All right. A lot Still more than you have one loss. Yep. There we go. So don't ask me um, to name all of them. Yeah. I don't think I would have gotten, I would not have gotten Southern Miss. I will say that. Um, or Charleston for what it's worth. Charleston still only with one loss and they have beaten some good teams, by the yeah. way. Charleston has beaten Virginia Tech, Colorado State, and Kent State, all of whom are top 75 teams in the country. Uh, Adam, this has been fun. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on. Well, Sam, thank you again for having me, and happy holidays to you. Um, Anybody listening can find me at the box and one underscore on Twitter. You can find me on YouTube, Adam Spinella. have a lot of uh, small scouting tidbit videos coming up in both locations over the next couple weeks. And then my Substack, the box and one dot substack.com has all of our longer form written content. And we're probably going to be starting to dive into those mid season scouting reports coming soon. Adam's the best. Go follow him, go subscribe to his work, go do everything you can to support him. Uh, this has been the game theory podcast. Please go subscribe over on the YouTube channel, Game Theory Podcast with Sam Vecini. Go subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Go subscribe on Spotify, whatever podcasting app that you use. Hit that subscribe button. I think that that's all that we've got. We will be back next week with a mailbag episode on my end. Please feel free to ask questions. This might be out by the time that I record it, um, but I will do another mailbag at some point this year, certainly. Um, Keep it locked here again next week because Adam and I will have another episode in the middle of the week. So until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.